at the Forest Monastery, a combined monastic and lay meditation community in San Diego County. He's the author of Mind Like Fire Unbound, a new book called Mediations? Meditations, meditations. <laughs> I was afraid no one would correct me. <laughs> and the translator of many Thai uh, meditation guides and selections from the Pali Canyon. Thank you. Good evening. You're lucky you have me here this evening. Gil sa- almost sabotaged me this evening. He'd asked what one of the things that monks can eat in the evening, one that I've been drinking recently at, at the monastery. It's a little bit of honey and a little bit of vinegar mixed in some hot water. So he wanted to know the proportions. And I said, well, one part, honey, uh, one part vinegar to two parts honey. So he mixed me one part vinegar to two parts water. <laughs> <laughs> and I took a healthy swig, and I'm still recovering. <laughs> mm. So excuse me. <clears throat> gather my thoughts for a second. Um, Tonight I'd like to talk about happiness. And in particular, the role of the quest for happiness in Buddhist practice. Most of us, when we first learned about Buddhism, the first thing we heard was the Four Noble Truths. It starts with suffering. And back in the 50s and 60s, when anthropologists went over to Asia to study Buddhism, particularly in Southeast Asia, they would prepare themselves by reading up in the Pali Canon. And we read a lot of, about suffering. In fact, that was back in the days when people believed that Buddha thought that life is suffering. And they go over to Asia, and they were surprised to find that Asian Buddhists were happy. Um, and particularly in Thailand, they, they seemed to smile a lot. And the attitude was, well, these people don't really understand Buddhism. If they under, really understood Buddhism, <laughs> they'd know better than to smile. And, of course, it comes from a a misunderstanding. The Buddha never said that life is suffering. He said there is suffering in life. The reason he focuses on suffering is because he he had a path to put an end to it, a path to lead to happiness. Um, And so I think it's good for us to reflect on the role that the pursuit of happiness plays in the practice. Because it's not just, as some people used to believe, elementary Buddhism that you then graduated from. You start out happy and then you actually find out how glum things are and then you go to Nirvana. But it's actually a consistent pursuit all the way through. Probably one of the most basic concepts in Buddhism is what's called the concept of refuge. The idea that the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha provide refuge. The concept of refuge, of course, assumes that there is a danger someplace that you need refuge from. And the danger that the Buddha points out more consistently than anything else is the fact that we cause ourselves a lot of suffering. But we are are responsible for most of our suffering. And it would seem, you know, it's it's one of the great ironies of life. We all want happiness, and yet we cause ourselves suffering largely through our own ignorance. And um, in fact, it's the way we pursue happiness that causes us to suffer. So he said, instead of trying to say, not to pursue happiness, he said there's a, there's a more intelligent way of pursuing it. If you're really serious about your happiness, um, he said, and that, that's, that's an assumption that many, that's, would seem to be automatic, that people would be serious about their happiness, but you look at the way most people lead their lives, 
and it seems like they're not really devoting that much you know, consistent attention to the issue of being happy. I know a psychotherapist one time who, after studying Buddhism for several years, finally realized that this was what it was all about. It was the pursuit of happiness. And she said up to that point in time, she'd assumed that never really taken happiness all that seriously. It was something that happened on the side, and it was pretty unpredictable. It wasn't something that you could take as a serious pursuit in life. The fact that a psychotherapist would say that is kind of scary. <laughs> but it does reflect, I think, a Western attitude is that the pursuit of happiness is something that's purely subjective. Not even different strokes for different folks. What one person likes may not be what somebody else likes. And there's no really objective standard, no one... Um, no, no way of saying that one way of happiness is better as long as you don't startle the horses. But, um, in fact, when I first brought up this, this issue in a, in a sitting group we have down in Southern California recently, one, one of the members of the group just really got offended. He said, how can anybody dare judge the way I pursue happiness? Saying that my pursuit of happiness is not good. And the Buddha is not saying that. He says just, if if the way we pursue happiness did not have its consequences, then it could be purely subjective. You could look for happiness anywhere you want it at all. But the fact that the way we pursue it does have serious consequences. There are certain ways of pursuing happiness that lead to misery down the line. Um, then you've got to look that there may be an objective standard to what is a, a wiser or more intelligent way of pursuing happiness. And so in the concept of refuge, as I brought up just now, what the Buddha does is he takes this pursuit of happiness that we all have and he tries to direct it in such a way that it actually does lead to a lasting happiness. The concept of refuge, they say, focuses on the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And there are two ways of looking at refuge. There's the external refuge that we take in the external Buddha, the external Dharma, the external Sangha. And this is maybe a beginning level. But the Buddha says, ultimately, that you want to do is bring these qualities inside. What are the qualities of the Buddha? What are the qualities of the Dharma? What are the qualities of the Sangha? How can you develop those inside yourself? And when you develop them inside, then they become an, a genuine refuge, one that you can take with you wherever you go. And essentially, for the, in terms of the Buddha, the classical qualities of the Buddha are... <coughs> excuse me. The vinegar is still there. <laughs> Wisdom, compassion, and purity. Now, wisdom, compassion, and purity are not concepts that we normally associate with the pursuit of happiness, but the way the Buddha has us look at this pursuit is designed in such a way that it does bring about these qualities or nurture these qualities in the, in the mind. These are qualities that we all have to some extent to begin with. Our problem is often, though, that we don't see how much um, shelter, how much refuge they can provide for us. They're like seeds. If you take a seed and you plant it and look after it, after a while it will grow into a plant, may even grow into a tree, at which point it really can provide shelter. But the seed itself, when you look at it, doesn't seem to be all that encouraging. You take a seed and you put it over your head and it doesn't provide much shade. <laughs> but if you grow it, it will provide shade ultimately. And it's the same with these three qualities. Um, in terms of wisdom, the Buddha said the this pursuit of wisdom starts with the question, what, when I do it, will lead to my long-term welfare and happiness? So again, it's your pursuit of happiness looking at it from the point of view that, one, you realize it's something that you have to do something about. You can't just wait for happiness to float your way, that your actions have an impact on whether or not you're truly going to be happy. Secondly, that you realize that long-term happiness is better than short-term happiness. The 
Because short-term happiness, if it's something turns from happiness into something else, it doesn't usually turn into more happiness. It turns into sorrow. It turns into disappointment. So you realize that you have you play an important role in that pursuit of happiness. And you ha- and that some sort forms of happiness are better in the sense that they last longer than others. And the Buddha says, starting from this, he said, this is the question that forms the basis for wisdom, because you began looking at your actions in terms of what kind of happiness they provide. We'll go into this a little bit more in detail in, in a few minutes. Secondly, in terms of compassion, he says, compassion for others begins with the realization that you want happiness. Are you any different from anyone else? Everybody else wants happiness as well. There's a famous story where um, King Basena de Gosla is in bed with his queen, Malika, and he turns to her and he asks her, is there anyone that you love more than yourself? Now, if this were a Hollywood movie, as you said, yes, your majesty, I love you more than myself. <laughs> this, however, is the Pali canon. <laughs> and she says, frankly, no. <laughs> and she turns the tables on him. How about you? Is there anyone you love more than yourself? Said, no, I guess not. <laughs> and, so, and so the king goes to the, the Buddha and reports this conversation. And the Buddha says, that's the way it is with everybody. Each person loves him or herself more than everyone else and more than anyone else. But, he says, when you reflect on that, this is what gives rise to compassion for other people. Realize that other people are just the same as you are. So this leads to two kinds of thinking. One, in terms of empathy, you realize that everybody else is motivated the same way you are. We're all in this together. We're all looking for happiness in one way or another. It helps you have a little bit more empathy for people who are looking for happiness in unwise ways. Instead of thinking them as, uh, thinking that evil people, you realize they're just misguided people. We're all basically got the same motivation. And if you can dig down into someone else's desire for happiness, you begin to see there's a lot of commonality here. Secondly, in the more practical terms, if, if your happiness is going to be based on somebody else's misery, they're going to be working against your happiness all the time. In which case, that kind of happiness is not going to last. So that reflection that leads to wisdom, what you're going to do for your... T- but when you do it, it will lead to your long-term welfare and happiness. When you take it a few steps further, it leads to the realization that you have to have compassion for other people's desire for happiness. You have to take their happiness into consideration if you're going to look for happiness that's true for you. Um, one of the great ironies in, in the history of Buddhism is that later, later versions of Buddhism said... Um, <clears throat> basically that you have to sacrifice your happiness, you have to sacrifice your awakening for the sake of other beings' awakening. Whereas the very earliest teachings, the Buddha said, your awakening involves the happiness of other people. Your search for awakening does not preclude their happiness. Actually, it's going to have to involve some help for their happiness as well. So in early Buddhism, they didn't see those as two opposite ideals, your happiness versus other people's happiness, rather that true happiness would have to involve the happiness of both sides. And so how do you find what is going to be for your long-term welfare and happiness? And this is what is uh, reflected in the Buddha's teachings to Rahula, his son. Excuse me. The vinegar is still pretty potent. There's a sutta. I may have mentioned it here before. Sometimes I wonder when I bring one of these topics here if I've talked about it before. Um, 
and then I was reassured several years ago that it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> I was going to give a talk at Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, and I couldn't remember what I talked about the year earlier. And I was afraid I was going to repeat myself until just before the talk, the woman came up to me and said, what you met, said last year meant so much to me. I've remembered it all year long. And then she said something which I know I would never have said. <laughs> <laughs> So I figured it didn't matter. It doesn't matter what I say. <laughs> You'll make of it what you like. <laughs> anyway, there's a story where Rahula, who's at this point is seven years old, he's a brand new novice, and one evening his father, the Buddha, comes to visit him. He sees his father coming from afar, and so he sets out some water for washing his feet. And as the Buddha comes, washes his feet, he leaves a little bit of water left in the in the dipper. And he points out to Rula, do you see how little water there is here in the dipper? And Rula says, yes. And he says, that's how little goodness there is in someone who tells a deliberate lie and feels no shame. And you have the feeling that probably Rahula that day to- told a lie. <laughs> so you can imagine how he feels. <laughs> and then the Buddha takes a little bit of water and he throws it away. And he says, see how that water's thrown away? And by this time, Rahula's probably squirming. He says, yes. So that's what happens to the goodness of someone who tells a deliberate lie and feels no shame. It gets thrown away, and so on in that vein. Um, basically, what the Buddha is establishing is that the first principle in the pra- practice of the Dharma is honesty that you, and truthfulness, that you tell the truth at all times. In fact, the Buddha once said, that bring me someone who is honest, someone who is truthful, and I will teach that person the Dharma. That's his prerequisite for a student, someone who is truthful. But anyway, he then goes on, having established the principle of truthfulness, he says, um, look at your actions as a mirror. First, when you intend to act, look at the intention. What kind of intention is it? And what kind of results will it lead to? If you see that it will lead to harmful results, either for yourself or other people, you don't do it. If you see no harmful potential consequences, go ahead and follow through the intention. Excuse me. If while you're doing the action, you see that something harmful is coming up, he says, stop. If you see nothing harmful coming up, continue with the action. When the action is done, then look at the long-term consequences. If you see that any harm came from that, then you resolve that you're not going to do it again. And also, at the same time, consult with someone else who's practicing to get their perspective on it. But if you see that no harm came from it, he said, then you can rejoice in the fact that you're on the path to true happiness. take that realization to give you more energy to continue on the path. Now, basically, this, what this is, is you know, instructions on how to learn from your mistakes. It's also interesting that this is the Buddha's introduction to the topic of karma to his son. He doesn't talk about rebirth and all those other issues that we tend to associate with karma. He starts out with your intention and the skillfulness or lack of skillfulness in the intention and the fact that you can learn from your mistakes and you get a second chance. Very good psychology for raising a child. You know? um, but it doesn't just stop as, as lessons for a child. Last week I was giving a talk on applying the teachings of Rahula to a much more advanced level of practice as well, which is the Buddha's teachings on emptiness. But before I go there, I just want to point out that at the very end of the sutta, the Buddha said, this is how people attain purity. Purity in terms of their actions, purity in terms of their... Um, their words, period, in terms of their thoughts. 
is that you reflect on the consequences. You look at your intention to see where it's going to lead. You look at your actions to see where they're going to lead. Where they have led, when you see they lead to an unfortunate place or something that you don't like, you change. Next time around, you do something different. Also, this teaches you to look at your thoughts as actions. We tend to get into our thoughts as worlds within the mind and don't really see where they're going. He's, this is encouraging you to step back a bit and look at the action as an event in a causal chain. Look at this. Look at your, excuse me. Look at your thought as an event in a causal chain. Where does that thought lead? Thoughts are not something that you simply indulge in. You have to realize that they're actions with consequences. So this takes the teaching on action and brings it inside as well. In terms of the teachings on emptiness, the Pali Canon approaches emptiness in a couple of different ways, but the most detailed way is in a sutta where the Buddha talks about how when you're practicing concentration, you get the mind focused on a particular mode of perception. For example, he gives the... Um, the example of going into the forest and you realize that you're surrounded by wilderness. You take that perception of wilderness and you make focus your mind on that. And you realize that once you have that perception of wilderness, then your mind is empty of all the perceptions that come on thoughts of people, thoughts of the city, thoughts of society, thoughts of the village. And it's just uh, there's wilderness all around you. I experienced several years back when I was in Zion National Park was climbing Angel's Landing. And I don't know if you've ever been there. It's, it's a pretty scary place to go, um, especially when you don't have the proper hiking equipment like monks. We have flip-flops and our robe. <laughs> it's not properly. <laughs> and so I was climbing up the slick rock, and it was becoming obvious that the flip-flops are dangerous. And so I took them off and was going barefooted. And my robe, after a while, was getting in the way, so, so I took the robe off and tied it as a sash around my waist. And just as we're coming up the, the slick rock, we heard this group of people coming down the other direction. And from about 100 yards away, we soon realized they were what their occupation was, all the, the gossip in the office <laughs> as they were coming down the, coming down the high, uh, path. And I kept thinking, here you are in National Park, and you're filling it up with your office back in Los Angeles. You know? <laughs> the conclusion of the story is they came around the bend, and they saw me and said, oh, look, 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 doesn't it feel like we're in Tibet? So what matter? <laughs> One of them had a camera. And they said, look, look, get his, get his bare feet, too. See his bare feet? <laughs> they were from a modeling agency. <laughs> anyway, it's so easy to f- take your surroundings and fill it up with all kinds of other stuff. But when you go out in the wilderness and you just get the fact that you're there in the wilderness and all the cares and tribulations of the household life, all the cares and tribulations of your job and family drop away and you just have that one perception of wilderness, you realize it's empty of all that other stuff. And this is the Buddha. And when you reflect on this and where there is disturbance in the mind, where there's no disturbance in the mind, when you can see that clearly, he said this is called alighting or landing on emptiness. And it's, it, provides, um, it provides a very precise place for the mind to focus and develop its um, develop insight in the process of doing concentration. Then he, from the perception of wilderness, he takes it into actual perceptions that we, we, would con- we would associate with a concentration practice. He talks about the element of earth. You can use the same teachings on breath as well. If you fill your body with a perception of breath, you begin to realize that the perceptions of the world surrounding you, your environment, are not there in that mode of perception. 
First you indulge, he says, in the perception that leads to the concentration. Then you pull back a little bit and notice, okay, what amount of disturbance is there and what amount of disturbance is not. So whatever is, wherever there's no disturbance is empty of the disturbance. And this is the, one of the original meanings of the term emptiness in the Buddhist tradition. And he says, as you look further, you realize that the disturbance is what you're doing. The actual perception that creates that concentration is the only disturbance within that mode of, per- mode of perception. And then you drop it. And in dropping it, you find there's another perception that will come up. A more refined one comes up in its place. And then again, you settle in with that for a while. As the Buddha says, you indulge in it. You acquire confidence in that perception. And then after a while, once you've been there long enough, then you can pull back and look at what's left in terms of how much disturbance is still remaining there. Do you see how similar this is to the pattern with his teachings with Rahula? You look for the disturbance that you yourself are causing. On this level of concentration practice, it's a very refined disturbance, but it's still the same. You look at your action, you see the disturbance as a result of your action, not so much as what other people have done or what the environment out there is doing to you, but what you are doing at that time. If you see there's a disturbance that you're causing, you drop it. It's the same as when he told Rahula. that If you see that you're causing pain or suffering, you stop that particular action. In both cases, the Buddha said that this process, one, requires honesty to really step back and look what, what element of disturbance really is there, what element of disturbance is not. And then it's like reflecting on what you're doing that is actually causing the disturbance so you can drop it. In this case, you, he says, you, de- you develop purity of mind, a purity of understanding. And you follow this perception, this process through to more and more refined levels, it finally takes you to nirvana. And that's, of course, the ultimate purity that there is. But in both cases, it's based on the desire that you don't want to suffer. You don't want to cause even the slightest bit of disturbance in the mind, in the, on the case of the teachings on emptiness. And you learn how to drop that disturbance. And that ultimately leads you all the way to awakening, to what the Buddha says is the ultimate happiness. So in this case, the Buddha takes the desire for happiness, and he says, if you use it intelligently, you can use it to develop qualities of wisdom, compassion, purity that leads you all the way to the goal. So instead of saying that the desire for happiness or the pursuit of happiness is something bad, he says it's something that can be adjusted, something that can be used if you reflect on it carefully, if you look carefully, if you're a truthful person about what you're doing that helps provide happiness or it's getting in the way of happiness. You can take that process and you can take it all the way to the ultimate happiness, the ultimate wisdom, the ultimate compassion, ultimate purity. That, he says, is the ultimate refuge. At this point, the mind is no longer causing any stress or suffering for itself, no longer causing any stress or suffering for other people. At that place, the mind is truly safe because it has seen through that point what its actions are and how to refine its actions to lead to the ultimate point of purity. So in this sense, the Buddha takes what we often think of as sort of basic teachings on, on If you're just beginning in Buddhism, teachings on refuge, teachings on karma, teachings on honesty. He says you take that and you develop them through this process and it takes you all the way to what we then would regard as some of the higher teachings in terms of emptiness, in terms of nirvana. It's a consistency all the way through. And it's based on the realization that this is what motivates everybody is the desire for happiness. 
And if we think intelligently about this desire and learn to channel it in the proper way, it becomes something that's not just purely arbitrary or that can lead to problems, but actually it leads to the ultimate happiness or ultimate well-being for everybody. So those are a few thoughts on happiness. I was wondering if you have any questions. Yes. There's one in the Majjhima Nikaya called the Lesser Sutta on Emptiness. It's basically trial and error. Um, but it's not that we've always been making nothing but mistakes. I mean, we wouldn't be here as human beings if we've made nothing but mistakes. You know, <laughs> we must have done something right. Yeah. And it's just learning how to reflect on it, on the things you've done. I mean, you can think about times that you've been generous and it created happiness. The times that you've restrained yourself from doing harmful things, but it's not just restraint, but it's also the act of doing. When you went out of your way to do something and you realize it really felt good afterwards. And hopefully you've come into the world with with some guidance from your parents and your teachers and friends around you. But I said, it's not, we're not starting just totally from scratch. We've got some experience in having been helpful, having been generous, and realizing that that kind of happiness is happiness you can live with for a long period of time. I mean, there's so much happiness in the world that once it's gone, then you reflect on it. Instead of feeling happy about the happiness you used to have, you know, it, it gets you sad. You know? <laughs> Either because, one, it's gone. Or two, you realize what you did in order to get there and you feel ashamed about what you did. We have to learn how to have gratitude for your correct actions as well. I mean, it's interesting that when the Buddha talks about alighting on emptiness, he says you see what's there and you also see what's not there. You're honest about both sides. Or when teaching Rahula, he says, okay, when you realize you've made a mistake, remember your mistake that you're not going to repeat it. But if there wasn't a mistake, he said, reflect on that too. For some reason, we seem to think that it's we're truer with ourselves when we admit our mistakes <laughs> rather than when we focus on what we've done right. And he's asking us to have a more balanced attitude. Our minds tend to be like vacuum cleaners. We pick up the dirt. <laughs> and we leave the good stuff behind. You know. And he's saying, reflect on both. You know. there's, there's a hand over here. Yes. The uh, description you were giving of being in the forest and focusing on that, mm-hmm. and then that meant that the rest of the 
Okay, I jumped over a lot of steps, yeah. Okay. Okay, from the forest, then you focus on your meditation object. Now, in that particular sutta, he says focus on earth. And realize, that they, you know, they have the theory of the four elements, you know, that's earth, water, wind, and fire. And as you think about the fact that everything that's physical is made out of earth. And he said, instead of thinking about the particularities about the earth, like where there are hills and where there are gullies and that kind of thing. Just think of the earthness of the whole thing, starting with your body, working out to the outside world. And that creates a much larger and more undifferentiated sort of perception rather than just wilderness. And it's just earth all around you. And he says to indulge in that perception, that you're really, just, you're really into that one perception that fills everything. Okay, once you really acquire confidence in that, then you can step back a little bit and see, okay, what kind of disturbance is presence here, present here and what kind of disturbance is absent? And you reflect on either, even the disturbances that came from the wilderness are no longer there. It's just earthness. It's just one singularity that you've got. You can do the same thing with the breath. You can close your eyes and just perceive your whole body as nothing but breath sensations, subtle or gross. And then think of, okay, there's an energy that extends out that fills the whole world. I mean, there's breath all around you. This is easier in time because the word for wind is the same as for breath. And for any kind of energy flow, they use the same word. And so you just think just energy flow, energy flow all around you. And you realize that a lot of the disturbance is based on, you know, this person or that person, I like this person, I like her clothes, I don't like her clothes, that kind of thing. She likes me, she doesn't like me. Those are gone, it's just energy field. So it's empty of all those disturbances that would come from likes and dislikes and social issues or whatever. It's just one singularity of energy field. And then in the particular discourse, again, the Buddha says, okay, back off from that. See what's present and what's absent there. And when you see it's just, okay, the perception of energy, in this case, is the disturbance. So you drop that and then you go into space. And you settle in there. And, and, and after a while, you begin to realize it's kind of a perception game that you can choose to perceive or choose not to perceive. It's a total, it's an element of choice that you've got. It's simply that you're choosing to develop more and more refined levels of perception. I had a student in a retreat recently who was, she was beginning to have the feeling that her body was dissolving as the breath got still. And I said, okay, well now focus on the space in between this, these, bodily, these dissolving bodily sensations. And at first she said, this is, this is awfully arbitrary. And I said, of course it's arbitrary. It's a choice you're making. We tend to forget that you know, the, the teachings on karma don't get dropped at the door when you go into meditation. Meditation is an activity. It's a kind of karma. It's an element of choice, where you're choosing to focus. And then in the, in the text, they talk about acquiring confidence in a particular perception. It takes a while to feel, okay, I'm confident enough to just stay with that perception of space and stick with it long enough so that it becomes solid and really single. Okay? And then you can go more and more refined levels from there as well. So as I said, I, I skipped a lot. Thanks for reminding me. I get in front of you all, and I want to get to the end of the talk fast. <laughs> yes, Olivia? Long term, the program has that thing. And in the meantime, 
talk about stress and uh, doubt sometimes. And I was just wondering if you can talk to how to get around that, how to work on it. To work your way through waiting for the long-term results finally to come? Yes, yeah, so that you know, either the other person will have to, when the other person is doing that for us to understand it, or when we're doing something good for the other person, mm-hmm. to the person to recognize that there's a long-term um, good result. Right. You have to fall back on the purity of your intention. To realize that, um, that you are not meaning ill to the other person. And just to remind yourself that a lot, of, a lot of times it takes a while for the results to come out. But that when they find the, the results do come out, then there's a sense of, sort of, then there's a sense of um, greater gratification that comes, that you were able to stick with something. But, um, what, you ha- what you can fall back on that time, that, at that point, until those results come, is looking at the purity of your own mind. And your honesty with yourself about that that issue. I mean, you re- as it, you're worried your intentions really pure. And as long as you can see that your intentions were not only good but also skillful, there's a sense of confidence that comes with that. That you didn't intend anything that you would be ashamed of. But, um, this is why the Buddha also says, you know, talk to somebody else about this too. Because if if you don't know how to give yourself pep talks, maybe they can give yourself a pep talk. This is something I learned in in Thailand. Um, I think you know, there's that Zen practice of having meditators learn a skill before they actually sit down and meditate. And here in the West, I think we could use a good dose of that. Because for so, so few of us have really learned skills that take a long time. To, you have to work, work, work at something before you finally see the results. And I learned this, learning how to sharpen knives in Thailand. I was given a big knife. You know, they, have, they don't have little tiny knives like ours. I mean, they're big knives, machetes that you could kill somebody with. And they give you the stone and they say, okay, sharpen it. And you have to sit there for half an hour, just very gradually working, working, working with the blade. And if you get in too much of a hurry to get it done, you ruin the blade. And if you get discouraged, you never get to the sharpness. And so you just have to sit there. And so you, 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 know, you play games with yourself. It's like, well, that much is done. Okay, there remains just this much. Okay, this much is done. Um, whatever you can to keep yourself encouraged to go in with a long-term practice. And then finally you come out and you do have the sharpened blade. And so, and a lot of it is learning how to give yourself pep talks along the way. And, and not to feel embarrassed about it, but just go ahead. Okay, this, we're getting there, we're getting there, we're getting there. And when you have that ability, then you can sit, you know, sit through long periods of meditation or sit through long periods, as you say, when it, the results haven't come up yet. They're not obvious yet. You begin to see a little glimmer here, a little glimmer there. And living in a world where things tend to be fairly instant, it's, you, you, we miss that kind of training. And learning how to stick with something for the long term. So, so learn how to give yourself pep talks. <laughs> Well, that's when you really have to have confidence in the purity of your intention and the power of intention. I guess that's all I can say. Yes? Um, I sort of discovered this in a roundabout way um, because 
find myself being angry, then I would watch my mind seek out something to be angry at. And I find that the same thing is true of just about every emotion that arises in the future, including happiness and joy. Well, you find it's not just chemical. I mean, there are these, they actually use the word outflow, and it's, a, it's a, you know, one of the traditional terms, asava. The mind flows out looking for something. I mean, it's basically looking for trouble, usually. <laughs> <laughs> but as you said, I'm looking, I'm looking for something good to get angry about, you know, and it's easy enough to find. But you can actually get behind that desire. You find that there's a point in the mind where you made the choice to go with that. And you can choose to go with it or not. That's the karma in that particular outflow. And then, but then you look, if I, fo- if I follow through with this, where does it lead me? And so again, there's, there's a part of you that can actually step back and observe the process and decide whether that's something you want to follow through with the next time or not. And the same for your desire for happiness. There's, I'm looking for something to really enjoy or something really to the lust after or something really to, to enjoy, feel happy about. Okay, step back and look. What was the result of that? Was there any real happiness there or was it just a kind of a hunger that you're trying to fill? And if you see, it, okay, it had a little bit of happiness to begin with, but then it turned into something else later. Okay, you've learned something and you can learn from that process so you don't have to go riding with it the next time. Well, you find after all, there are some things that you can't go with. They're to- totally harmless, totally helpful. And then you learn how to go with that kind of flow and pursue that. Again, it's, it's our tendency to focus on the times when we made mistakes as opposed to the times when things actually went right. It really was helpful. There's, there's a teaching in Thailand that you know, if there's the impulse to be generous ever comes up, you always follow through with it. And then reflect on that. And, you know, it was a good thing. You know. <laughs> Intelligent generosity, okay. <laughs> yes.
satisfaction of three or four times in a day. And instead of letting it pass and not getting locked into it, it seems much easier to just see that it's there and letting it go, see things differently. Okay, there are several things in that question. One is the third patriarch. <laughs> he says, the great way is easy for those with no preferences. Now what that means is, if you prefer this way as opposed to the other way, you're going to get in trouble. Or if you say, I want a path that I like, you're going to get in trouble. But if you realize, okay, this is what has to be done if you're going to get the results you want, and then you do what has to be done. That's, that's having no preferences. In other words, you're willing to shape yourself in line with the Dharma, whatever the Dharma demands. Okay, then, then the path becomes easier. Um, the second part of the question is watching things coming and going. There is an element of just arising and passing that goes on in the mind, but there's also an element of choice. That you choose to focus on some things as opposed to others. And what the Buddha is saying here is that there are actually some things that are worth focusing on and other things that are worth letting go. So it's not just, a, not just a path of letting go, letting go, letting go, but there are actually some qualities that you're developing. In the beginning, he says, it's, it's, it's a good thing to develop an attitude of generosity. It's a good thing to develop an attitude of restraint. Because these things do lead to a, a greater form of happiness. If you, just, if you just get totally passive in the practice, it doesn't go anywhere. Well, it's kind of an issue of past karma and present karma. I mean, the stuff that your mind churns up to begin with is past karma. These things that kind of come in without your intention. It's up to you to intend to whether just let them go or whether hang on to them and make some use out of them. And that's your present karma. And so if you have... So it's important that you realize that there's some things you, you know, that are worth letting go. Whatever just pops up in the mind, you don't have to, as you say, don't have to take it too seriously. Don't believe everything you think. <laughs> and don't take responsibility for everything you think. Right now. There may have some, been some past karma that did that, but you have the choice right now to decide whether I should let this go or whether I should actually make use of this. So it's important to realize that you have that choice. And then make the, make the best of it. Gil does the uh, vinegar trip and all the rest 
He's accusing you of sabotage. <laughs> Not only me, but all the guests. <laughs> Live around people who've lived that way. Live based on those assumptions. And have obviously gained some sort of peace, of, have gained some sort of happiness. That's probably the, that's, that's the most powerful way. I mean, I myself, you know, I read Buddhism and it sounded like it made a lot of sense. I had some questions, you know. Someone who gets rid of greed, anger, and delusion, you know, could you actually talk to this person? You know? <laughs> Would they have a reaction, you know? Or they just, and then I met a teacher that I felt that had, you know, Follow the practice quite a way down the way, and he seemed to be an extremely happy person. And so, it's if you don't have people like that around you, well, you know, remember that there are people out there that have lived this way, and those are the ones who are truly happy. And look at the people who live, you know, who don't keep the big picture in mind. What kind of lives are they have? And then make your choice: what kind of person do you want to be? This is why we take refuge in the Noble Sangha. And that's a whole other Dharma talk right there. Isn't it? You know, taking refuge in the Noble Sangha as opposed to the IMC Sangha. It's a qualitatively very different kind of thing. Yes? Um, I wanted to... Your explaining the, the notion of emptiness mm -hmm. and how it's really stepping back from disturbances mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. kind of in this way. And the whole, uh, the whole Nibbana element mm -hmm. I've, has been a challenge for me to understand because it's not some state that you can achieve. It's a state that somehow is, I, I've imagined, by the way you're describing letting go of other conditions, mm -hmm. the disturbances mm -hmm. that, that are there. And there's that kind of a, a craving aspect to wanting this refuge, mm -hmm. this final mm -hmm. refuge that's mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. And 
your explanation was very helpful. Mm -hmm. Well, there has, there has to be an element of desire. If you don't want to get there, you're not going to get there. And as the Buddha said, the last thing that you're going to let go of is your desire for nirvana. So the, it's the whole issue of you know, desire and having goals in the path. You have to have goals. And you have to have a desire to get to the end. In fact, that's it's a great advertisement for this weekend's course. <laughs> the role that desire plays in getting to, the, in getting to a, desireless, you know, a state of desirelessness at the end. But a lot of that, it, it, a lot of it is just learning how to let go, sort of bit by bit by bit of, con of conditions. It's it's a it's a path that you follow. Nirvana isn't something you create, but it takes effort to get there. The image that a John Lee used to use was of distilling seawater. I mean, pure water is already there in the seawater. You don't create the pure water, but you can't just let the seawater sit there and hope that someday the salt's going to settle out. You actually have to actively distill it. And that requires a certain amount of desire, a certain amount of effort. Once the effort is done, you find that what you've got is something that was already there. So think about that. <laughs> hmm? Okay, that's it. Well, thank you for having me. <laughs>